This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. going from Genesis 39. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian, who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the commander of the army, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of the Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his hand everything he owned. From, time, uh, from the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Pot- Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in this house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my hand. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even to lie beside her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak with her in her hand and fled from the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been, has been brought to us to laugh and make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came in to me to laugh and make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying... This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. The Lord showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warder. So the warder put Joseph in charge of all of those held in the prison. And he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warder paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh lost his temper with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in the custody in the house of the commander of the army, the same prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, and he attended them. After they had been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials, who were in custody with him in his master's house, 
Why do you look so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there is no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. He said to him, in my dream, I saw a vine in front of me and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand and I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup and put the cup in his hand. This is what it means, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position. And you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand, just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. When the chief baker saw that Joseph had given a favorable interpretation, he said to Joseph, I too had a dream. On my head were three baskets of bread. In the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. This is what this means. Joseph said. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and impale your body on a pole, and the birds will eat away your flesh. Now, the third day was Pharaoh's birthday, and he gave a feast for all his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that he once again put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he impaled the chief baker just as Joseph had said to them in his interpretation. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Thanks, Florence. Brilliant. Okay, we're running the story of Joseph, which is this uh, dramatic story of highs and lows, ups and downs. And just just let, uh, let me just bring up to speed, if you don't know the story, uh, we, thought, we saw last week that basically uh, J- Joseph's father, Jacob, uh, had been um, not loved by his dad, uh, Isaac, um, and uh, so basically uh, he'd become kind of insecure and feeling like, I-, I need love, and so he tried to look for love first in his wife, Rachel, and then in his uh, Rachel's son, uh, Joseph and Benjamin. And so we'd got this kind of family where Jacob had other wives and other sons, but he didn't love them. And so basically what happened, he'd done with his, uh, his dad had done to him in terms of loving his brother, not him. He did to, to his family. And that kind of rolls on through. And then basically the brother, Joseph, becomes this arrogant uh, kind of 17-year-old who's having dreams and basically saying, everybody's going to bow down to me. Uh, and uh, he's really kind of out of order in terms of... Um, is pride and arrogance. So the brothers, who are also angry, they decide to kill him. And so what happens is uh, that one of the brothers, Reuben, says, don't kill him, uh, let's uh, throw him in a pit. So they throw him in a, a deep pit, and um, and then Reuben goes away, and they said, oh, well, actually, let's sell him. So he's sold as a slave uh, into Egypt. Uh, and, um, and so basically what happens is Jacob's uh, sins revisit him. His partial attitude towards his sons becomes what Jacob does. And that uh, uh, spoiling of Joseph destroys, is starting to destroy Joseph. But also it's this ticking time bomb under the family. And we saw last week about how um, things happen to us. Uh, and we think, well, you know, is God, is God in charge? Is God there? And Joseph must have felt this when Joseph was thrown into a pit uh, it seems like he has this amazing change because what we're gonna, what we read going forward is Joseph, rather than being, hey, everyone's gonna bow down to me and telling a bad report about his brothers, lying about his brothers, and generally being rather blown up, he's actually suddenly comes out of this situation really changed. He's thrown into the pit and it says uh, later on in, in Genesis 43 that he cried out from the pit and no one came. And we said actually how his cries were like Christ's cry on the cross in the sense of that he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Felt had this forsaken cry. And we said how it's very easy when things happen to feel like, why? Why is this happening? Is God really in charge? Is God really in control? But it seems like in that tragic moment, in that most tragic moment where he wanted God to intervene, 
uh, something happened in Joseph's life. It seems like he, he faced the reality of death and, and it changed him. Um, the guy that's uh, involved with our church, oversees our church, called, a guy called PJ Smythe, he had a cancer um, some years ago and, um, and you know, basically said that he kind of looked death in the face and it brought everything into perspective. He's actually remarkably healed of cancer. Some are and some aren't. Uh, but he was, he's in remission of cancer. But he said that, that that experience of, as it were, looking at his life uh, and examining what everything was all about uh, really transformed him. And, and I think for, for, for Joseph that's happened as well. So, so we pick up Joseph in Egypt and basically Joseph is suddenly, instead of a, 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 an arrogant youth, he's still 17, he's suddenly become this kind of hard-working um, guy. He becomes this faithful guy. He becomes this, he's a servant uh, but yet he's, he's actually, God's blessing him. It, it says, uh, the Lord uh, was with Joseph and he prospered. It, it says, um, the Lord gave success to Joseph. There's a sense where God's blessing Joseph and, and, and Potiphar, who's the sir, uh, captain of the guard, he, he's probably his job is to run the prison that jo- Joseph's going to go into later on. He's the captain of the guard and um, he's ble- he's, his house is getting blessed because because, J, uh, because Joseph's getting blessed, because God's with Joseph. And, and it's interesting, Joseph has got this kind of, all these things that you'd put on a, on a good guy's CV. You know, you went, I often have to write references, and you think, oh, what shall I put? You know, so you put hardworking, trustworthy, reliable. He's all those kind of things that you want on a good CV. And, and, he's, and he's so much so that, he's, that Potiphar says, you can be in charge of the whole house. And it's interesting, you might just think, oh, well, that's just because Joseph suddenly become a, a hard-working guy. But actually, what's happening is the promise right at the beginning of the Bible to, to Abraham was that he would be blessed, so the nations would be blessed. And this is the first example we see one of Joseph's, uh, one of Abraham's descendants, Joseph, in a foreign country. And what happens is he's already a blessing. He's already doing good to Potiphar's household. Potiphar has success because God's with Joseph. Okay, first application. That is who you are. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've put your trust in Jesus, you are being blessed. God's favour is on you. God's delight is on you. And that's great for you. But actually, it doesn't mean you're not going to find hard times and you're not going to find difficulties. You're not going to find yourself in situations perhaps, you know, like Joseph, maybe worse, but probably not. But you're going to find yourself in situations. But actually, you're not just blessed so you can have a nice life. You're blessed because you to be a blessing. So it's great to do Midsummer Fiesta um, and and be out there. And the, the council people said, we couldn't have done it without you. You guys are amazing. We thought we didn't do anything. Steve Moe, who's is now on holiday, was in charge. He just basically said, the council said, you guys are amazing. And I thought, that's what it is. We're blessed to be a blessing. We're friendly, smiley, warm, relational, encouraging, because that blesses. And then we're blessed to be a blessing. That's what happened with Joseph. It's, it's the promise that was happened uh, to, to Abraham. Okay. And so what happens is we, um, we're going to see, though, that actually Joseph goes through four temptations. And, and I, I don't like to do this normally, it feels a bit cheese, but it did work. So we're going with four Ps. Uh, passion, temptation, sorry, temptation to power, to grasp power. Temptation to indulge in passion. Temptation to self-pity. And temptation to impatience. Okay, so we've got four temptations. So Joseph is going to go through these temptations. So hold on to your hat, guys, because we're going to drop the, uh, drop, the, drop the Bible right in your lap. And you're going to think, oh, he's after me. When I'm preparing this, I think, no, he's after me. Uh, the Bible's after me. It's, the, what we want to do is, is challenge your motives this morning. We want to see how are you doing on these four temptations. Because actually, Joseph's book, there's not a book of your life. There's not a book of your life in the Bible. There's not a book that's saying this is what's going to happen in your life. But there is a book uh, about Joseph's life and we're to learn this is how God works in Joseph's life, and this how it works in your life. So the first temptation is a temptation of power. It says, The Lord gave Joseph success in everything he did. Joseph found favour in, um, in uh, Potiphar's eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and entrusted into his hand everything he owned. That phrase, into his hand, is quite an interesting phrase because it suggests that Joseph's hands were open and, and, and Potiphar's putting responsibility and honour and success into his hands. 
The truth is that it could have been very easy for uh, Joseph to be the one who's trying to grasp a situation. He's trying to, trying to grab power. He's put as a slave and he thinks, right, I'm going to work my way up. I'm going to grab opportunity and grab opportunity and grab opportunity and grab opportunity. I'm going to grab power because actually I'm a slave and I don't want to be. I want to be uh, uh, on, in charge. I want to be on top. I want to be the one who uh, grabs everything for me. And it's interesting that actually we see that Jesus is not a grasper of power. Jesus is not a grasper of power and neither is Joseph. Joseph says he does the right things and God blesses him. It says about Jesus in Philippians 2, 5 to 7, Jesus, who being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage or something to be grasped. Rather, make it te- rather he made himself nothing, nothing by taking the nature of a servant. Joseph is forced to be a servant but works as with a servant with an open hand, a good servant. Jesus willingly humbles himself and becomes a servant. He's not grasping after power. It says, though Jesus is equal with God, he didn't consider being like God is about grasping power. No, being like God is about being a servant. Here we see Joseph being like Jesus, we see Joseph not grasping after power. We see him serving, being a, a humble servant. So different from the first human, Adam. If you know the story of the Bible, the first human is Adam, and he's told you need to. He's tempted uh, to grasp power. He says God's holding out on you. You need to grasp this fruit, and you will be like God. The nature of humanity is to grasp after power, grasp after influence, grasp after. Those things that seem unavailable. But no, God's way is to have an open hand, to serve. And what we find here is Joseph is transformed. He, he doesn't fall for power. He doesn't think, I'm going to grab after power to work my way out of the prison. No, he's doing the right thing. He's serving because that is what God has taught him. Now, it's interesting, there's another person who's using power in this story, not Potiphar. He's giving uh, power and influence to uh, Joseph, but actually Potiphar's wife is using power. It says in Genesis 30, uh, uh, 39 verse 6, now Joseph was well built and handsome. So obviously, you know, he, when you look at me, you can think, yeah, I can relate to that. I can see how it works. <laughs> Joseph was well built and handsome, and while his, and after a while, his master's wife, it's interesting the word it uses is master's wife. It's clear where the authority lines lie here. This is the boss. Or this is the boss's wife, and this is a servant, a worker. She took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. The actual literal translation is, would be, you sex now. And it's a command to a servant, come now. You do as you're told, come here. You sex now. This is a power play. Yes, she wants sex, but actually it's a power play. She wants to uh, display her power. This is a blatant power grab. She literally wants to grab him. And actually we'll find that what she does grab, what ends up in her hand as she grabs, all she gets is um, Joseph's cloak. She's after power. She's after power. Genesis 39, the story goes on, she said, but Joseph refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns is entrusted into my hand. There's that phrase again. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has, my master has not withheld, that's hand again, nothing from me except you because you are his wife. Why could I do such a wicked thing? It's interesting that if, uh, for, for some people, Joseph, the reasons for Joseph's refusal to go to bed with her would have been the very reasons to go to bed with her. He would have said, my master has withheld, given me everything, but he's withheld you from me. You know, he's mean and twisted and he doesn't give me. He, you know, I should take this. I should find, I should grasp equality with my master. I should take his wife to bed and prove that I truly am free, that I truly can exercise my freedom, my self determination. Some people would have said, actually, I can take it, I can reach out and take this forbidden fruit and prove that I'm myself. That's what happens at the beginning in the garden. Adam says, I'm going to reach out and I'm going to be like the master. I'm going to be like God. I'm going to take this for myself. 
And for most of us, we'd have used that uh, that situation as a slave, a situation as one uh, who's been ordered around would say, that gives me every reason. Oh, I was just obeying them. I was just doing what she told me. But he understands that no, this is a, a, a his refusal to take power is a wicked thing. His refusal uh, is a staggering act of faithfulness to his master. A staggering act of humility. We're so often on the wrong side of this. So often we want to grab influence and power for ourselves. We may not do it by having sex with a boss, his wife. We might. But actually, so often we're grabbing for power and influence. We're constantly processing life and saying, where am I on this ladder? And when an opportunity comes to take something and climb high, we go there. But Joseph has learned to be like Jesus, who empties himself and serves. He understands that this power grab is a wicked temptation. So that's his first temptation, and he passes. Second temptation, the temptation of passion. Carrying on the same way we were. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife. How then could I do a wicked thing and sin against God? And although she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even lie beside her. One day he went to the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants were inside. She caught him by the cloak and said to him, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and fled from the house. If you're ever tempted in kind of any way at all, particularly in this sense in sexual temptation, if you're ever tempted in any way sexually or you're tempted in any way, you'll recognise the tempter's tactics here. She is very, once he's refused, she doesn't give up. She's persistent day after day. Go on. Come on. He says she spoke to him. Why she's commanded him before, she's now speaking to him really nicely. Come on. Come to bed with me. Come to bed with me. Wouldn't it be nice? Come on. She's trying to erode his, uh, his, 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 his willpower. She's trying to say, come on. Go on. And then you know, if you struggle with a temptation, a sexual temptation, or if you struggle to look at porn, or you struggle uh, with like flirtatious affairs, if you struggle with like a, a, a kind of, you want money or you want influence, the temptation doesn't go away. It keeps on coming. It keeps on coming. Come on. Come on. Come on. And that's what's happening to, uh, to Joseph. She's trying to erode his willpower. And the truth is, you will fail if you try and resist temptation by willpower. You think, whoa, hang on a minute, what's supposed to happen? If you're addicted to pornography and you try and attempt to, to, to respond and say no to that by willpower alone, eventually you'll be worn down and you'll sin again. Willpower is not enough. And Jake, uh, Joseph is not res- re- resisting by willpower. I believe however many times she'd have said, come on, he'd have said no. Not because he didn't want to, not because there weren't power opportunities to begin, but he's not resisting with, with willpower, he's resisting with something else. Thomas Chalmers, a Scottish preacher, uh, in his famous 19th century sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. They don't preach sermons like that anymore, do they? The Expulsive Power of a New Affection says this. Seldom do any of our habits or flaws disappear by process of extinction. In other words, desire doesn't die out. People say, oh, I, I might struggle with, with sexual addiction because I'm, I'm kind of young and I haven't got a wife. And, and then when you get a wife, you think, oh, well, you know, my, my, my ex- sexual uh, kind of uh, temptations are going to die out. Doesn't happen. Those desires and lusts don't just die out on their own. Process of extinction through reasoning or the mere force of mental diser- determination. Reasoning and willpower are not enough. This is amazing what he says. But what cannot be destroyed may be depossessed, dispossessed. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. Why doesn't he go to bed with her? It's not just willpower because he thinks it's a wrong thing to do to his master. He says, this is a sin against God. This is a sin against God. 
There's God in view here. When he's tempted, he's thinking there's God in view. Why is he thinking God is in view? Does he think that God's a a mean master who's going to punish him? If he does that? No, because he he would be the that would be the same motivation for for Potiphar. He doesn't say Potiphar's going to punish me. But actually, what's happening is that there's a passion for God. There's a passion for God. Uh, Sex with a woman who was not his wife, although it may feel attractive, was not attractive as faithfulness to God. You've got to understand that when you're dealing with sin. It's faithfulness to God that's in view here. To have sex with Potiphar's wife was a huge act of unfaithfulness. To Jesus. Jesus is always faithful. Why is sex with multiple partners, like, why does God down on that? Surely you need to get a little 21st century and just chill out a little bit. You know, why are Christians so obsessed with sex? Actually, it's, the sex isn't the issue. It's the faithfulness. God is always faithful. God is always faithful. And unfaithfulness is a crime against God. It's saying God in your very nature, in your faithfulness, is irrelevant. And actually, if you understand Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for you, if you understand his faithfulness to you forever, to say that faithfulness doesn't matter is incomprehensible. It certainly is for Joseph. It's incomprehensible that he would say, I'm going to be unfaithful to God. This is the, the, the God that Potiphar knew. It doesn't, when it said that, 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 that God was with him, it actually, Potiphar realises that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is with him. Why would he mock? Maybe he's talked to Potiphar about the God of Israel. God is always faithful. God is always faithful. He's faithful to my father, my grandfather, Abraham. He's faithful. He keeps his promises. He's faithful. Yeah, but look what's happened to you. You're a slave. No, God is faithful. How could he be unfaithful? How could he be unfaithful and and say, well, I don't care about God. But actually there's passion. His passion for God is the thing that stops him. I would say to you, if you struggle with sexual temptation, if you struggle with temptation in an area, the the question is not you need more willpower, you need more passion for Jesus. I say it to myself, I say it to all of you. You need more passion for Jesus if you want to overcome temptation. If your temptation is, I want pleasure, I want an easy life, I want money, I want sex... Passion for Jesus is the expulsive power that drives that out. It truly is. It truly is. We'll jump the next slide, okay? So what happens is that Joseph... um, Joseph does what's right. He says, I am going to be faithful to the God who's faithful. I am going to let my emotions and my body be in, in, in integrity. You know what integrity means? It means you're joined up. Everything's joined up. You know, if you have uh, sex around the place, basically what you're saying is my body can go there and there and there and there, or my mind lustfully can go there and there and there and there, but actually my life and my commitment's not going there and there and there. That's lack of integrity. What you do if you sleep around is you're basically saying my body can go there, but I'm not going to commit my life to you. My money, my time, my energy, my... All of I am. When you get married, you say, all that I am, I give to you. You don't say, let's have some sex and we'll see how it rolls. What you say is, all I am, I give to you. And your body follows your commitment. It's integrity. What's the opposite of of, of integrity? Disintegrity. Well, that isn't a word, is it? But disintegration is. Disintegration is. Why does family and society and, and, and mental health, why is it in so, dis, so much disintegration? Because we separate one from the other. We separate faithfulness from intimacy. And God says, no, they're together with me. And Christ Jesus is together with me. And Joseph gets that. But what happens is he does the right thing. He does the right thing, but actually it doesn't turn the right way. 
sometimes we kind of get the idea, and maybe the kids have been taught this, in, you know, in kids' church, I hope they're not. <laughs> but they've been taught, not about sex in kids' church, Karen's thinking, oh my word, no, what are they going to come to? But maybe that they'll be taught, if they do what's good and they follow Jesus, nothing bad's going to happen to them. I say this often, don't I? If you've listened to me at all. That is not true. It's not true that if you do the right thing, nothing bad is going to happen. Here, Joseph does exactly the right thing. You know, in that sense, he becomes a Christian. He's not, I think something's happened to him before, but in that sense, he's saying, I- I'm living like a Christian. I'm living like you, and I'm faithful to you alone. My passion's that way. And he does the right thing, and then what happens is, bang, he's in jail. She comes and says, uh, um, you know, he could easily have thought, oh, poor old me. He could have easily been tempted to self-pity. Poor old me. So he said, let's pick up the story, uh, thir- uh, verse 17. Uh, Potiphar's wife told Potiphar this story. That Hebrew slave, look, suddenly look where he is now. It's not like, oh, come and lie with me. You know, let's go halfway. A little bit of, a little bit of temptation won't matter. And then the pastor said, are you sleeping with her? No, we're not sleeping with each other. You know, a.k.a. we're lying together a.k.a. we're going for a weekend away together. Oh, but we're not, we're not doing sex, technically. You know, he's not, he's not falling for that. He's running out of the house. When temptation comes, he's running out of the house. He runs out of the house and she grabs his cloak. Says, this Hebrew slave that he brought me has come to, to laugh and make sport of me. It's interesting. Why, why do you say laugh? She's mock, is mocking Joseph's granddad. What's his name? Isaac. What does Isaac mean? He laughs. Saying, look, this son of, this grandson of Isaac, he's a con artist. He's a belittling, belittles his father, his grandfather, belittles his God, this Hebrew. Came to make sport of me, and as soon as I, I, as soon as I screamed for help, he, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the, the story his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, and there, uh, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Joseph's righteousness, right decisions, does not earn him honour, but disgrace. We know someone, don't we, whose righteousness didn't earn him honour, but disgrace. Jesus' righteousness did not earn him honour, He's disgraced. He's tried and whipped and accused and thrown in. Isaiah says he's numbered with the transgressors. That means he's, he's almost like put in prison with Barabbas, a murderer. This is what happens to Joseph. Joseph gets thrown in prison. He's not done anything wrong. He gets thrown in prison with the, with the transgressors, with the other prisoners, with the king's prisoner. I don't, we don't know why he escapes death penalty, because that's what should have happened. We all, I think the only reason we know is that God's sovereign. God's in charge. God wants to keep him alive. And actually, even though he probably didn't realise at the time, God wanted him in the prison with the king's prisoners. God was working something. If Joseph had have not fallen in, uh, uh, had this accusation made him by Potiphar's wife, he might have stayed as the kind of important person in, you know, the CEO of Potiphar's business. But actually, that is not what God had for him. So he throws him down into the dungeon because God wants to raise him up to something far greater. But it's easy. Joseph could have easily kind of sat in prison and thought, flip, this is not how it should be. This is not how it should play out. You know, self-pity is described as excessive, self-absorbed unhappiness over one's own trouble. Excessive, self-absorbed, unhappiness over one's own trouble. He could have thought, man, you know, last time I was thrown into the pit by my brothers, and okay, maybe I was, you know, maybe I did deserve it a bit. Not that it wasn't their fault, but maybe I did deserve it a bit. But this time, I don't deserve this. This isn't fair. Guys, this this is going to come. This is going to come. I was reading yesterday about this in the United States, that teachers have been sacked because they they I need to get this carefully right, they won't use the correct gender pronoun for kids. 
So if the kid is, looks like a boy, but says he's a girl, and you call him he, that is a, a violation of their human rights. If, you wanna, if the kid says, I'm neither a boy nor a girl, then you've got to say Z, or whatever. And, and, and this kind of is like, it's like 1984, isn't it? Where you, you, you know, this is reality, but you've got to call it something else. Guys, people, people don't think that's not going to come here. Don't think nurses aren't going to lose their jobs for praying for someone at hospital. You know, or airline attendants aren't going to lose their job for wearing a cross. What? It seems incredibly unreasonable. But guys, this, is, this will come. Accusation for us living right is coming. Belt up. You know, buckle up, guys. I'm not saying it's going to be next week, but it is coming. I'm not saying we'll find ourselves in prison. I remember when I was a kid reading about uh, uh, Eastern Europe, Christians thrown into prison for their faith. You read um, the story, I think, uh, were you reading it, the Zach, the Heavenly Man? There's a story of a, a Chinese guy who's absolutely punished and persecuted for his faith in Jesus. But when he gets in a prison, he's not like, oh, flipping Christianity. You know, what is God like? What am I doing here? You know, if only they knew how much I've suffered. It's falsely accused and, you know, poor old me. He doesn't do that. He's got a temptation to self-pity. He doesn't do that. I just wrote some thoughts here uh, and then I'll back it up with a, a quote. When you're wallowing in a state of pity, self-pity, you can begin to feel that God is withholding good things from you. My life, poor old me. Self-pity doubts the character of God, his goodness and love. You begin to feel a sense of entitlement that you deserve more. Self-pity is distorted pride. It lies about your importance, your entitlement, your rights. But before you're aware of it, self-pity has drained your energy, undermined your faith, and as you're looking for comforts and sins to ease your sorrow. You might find avenues of escape that allow you to feel better only for a while, but before, but before long, self-pity returns deeper and darker than before. Self-pity is saying, God, you owe me and you haven't delivered. Or I deserve better. It's doubting God's character or it's pride that you deserve something better. That isn't supposed to happen to me. I mean, we need to understand that actually what, as Christians, what do we truly deserve? We deserve to die for our sin. That's the best we can hope for. Anything better than that is God's grace and mercy. The fact that he makes us his sons and daughters, the fact that he loves us and cares for us, lavishes his love on us and he wraps his coat of goodness around us for eternity is absolutely a free gift of grace. It's, it's not like we've earned it. But Joseph doesn't go into that self-pity. You know, self-pity can make you feel like, oh, I can't be bothered. I just want to escape. I'm going to be having a, a sabbatical break um, next year sometime. And I, I was chatting to the elders and said, you know, I find myself a little worried at times that I'm dreaming of my sabbatical break. <laughs> you know, I'll just, maybe I'll go to visit Zach in South Africa and have a nice safari. I'll play golf with Mark every day and... You know, I'll just kick back and, you know, because I deserve it. You know, you really don't know how tough my life is and how much of a challenge it is. And, and, and I find myself dr- escaping. It's self-pity. It means, oh, I can't be bothered. I don't want to do it. Come to the prayer meeting. No, my life, if you know what my life was like. I've got these reports. It's the end of term. I used to be a teacher. You know, whatever is going on, you oh, dear. And it just saps you. And then what happens is the tempter says, come to bed with me, or whatever the equivalent is, and you think, oh, sack it, why not? Oswald Chambers, different Chambers, we're getting Chambers isn't getting mentions today, says this about self-pity. This is like an AK-47 of a quote, shoots you right between the eyes. <laughs> if we give way to self-pity and indulge in the luxury of misery... We remove God's riches from our lives and hinder others from entering into his provision. God doesn't provide for me and he ain't going to provide for you. So suck it up. That's how it is. No. 
No sin is worth self-pity because it removes God from the throne of our lives, replacing with our own self-interest. You know, man, you know, you should have three kids, two kids, one kid under two years. The challenge, I'm not saying it don't, it's not hard. I had three kids, and I remember I said to my wife, you know, I went to the doctor, and he said, you need to take responsibility. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, so I've been there, don't get me wrong, I haven't not been there, I've t- but, but I understand the challenge, but, but if you go into self-pity, you end up with no energy, no faith, God, why have you done this to me? Rather than thinking, hey, my kids, thank you, Jesus. You know, I say to people now, I'd do my kids all over again. I mean, Nezzy probably thinks, no way. I would do them all over again. I'd probably do them better. They'd turn out a lot nicer than they are now. <laughs> I would be more holy. and uh, You know, I, I don't think, oh, what a horrible thing. You know, I, 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 I often talk to Mark when we're playing golf, and he says, you know, don't sweat the small stuff. He said, I can't be doing with people that sweat the small stuff. That's usually after I've missed a two-foot putt and slammed my putter into the ground. Oh! <laughs> Whatever, sorry, that's nothing to do with this quote. I've got Coatley off and I'm losing all the power of it. Let's go back. No sin is worse than self-pity because it removes God from the throne of our lives, replacing with our own self-interest. It causes us only, it causes us to open our mouths only to complain. This is a really strong image. We simply become spiritual sponges, always absorbing, never giving, never being satisfied. And there is nothing lovely or generous about our lives. Self-pity. You might have had a really horrible life. You might tell your story in small group and everyone grabs their hankies. And that's not because your life hasn't been tough. But if you fall into self-pity, you're just like this sponge that soaks the life out of everything. No, Joseph has faith in God. Even in the prison, he has faith in God. Even in the prison, he says, uh, God is with him. The chapter 39, uh, 39 finishes exactly the same as it started. It says, the Lord is with Joseph, and uh, the, the, the warden put everything into his hand, gave, the, gave him success with everything. He said, well, it doesn't look like success, but Joseph understands. No, I've got faith in God. God is with me. God's with me. Even in the prison, even in the false accusations, even in the difficult times, God's with me. I understand that God's with me. He doesn't fall into that temptation of self-pity. He acts. The best way out of self-pity is to act. Act positively. I read a blog by a friend of mine called Andrew Haslam. And he says, the way to get out of self-pity is gratitude. The way to express gratitude is generosity. You give yourself away to others is the way out of self-pity. Joseph doesn't sit in a corner, sucking his thumb, thinking, poor old me. He thinks, I'm in prison, I'm going to give. I'm going to give myself away. I'm going to love. We see this incredibly, um, and the kind of the, the temptations overlook, but we see this incredibly uh, when he's in prison. Let's go to the next slide. I've put the temptation of impatience, but they kind of overlap. Let's read. I'll pick out some self-pity, and then we'll move to temptation, then we're done. The Lord was with him. The Lord showed him kindness and granted him favour in the prison warder. The Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in everything he did. The captain of the guard, that would be Potiphar again, assigned uh, Pharaoh's officials to Joseph and he attended them. And after, the, after he'd been in custody for some time... Interesting. He's in custody. I don't know what your vision of prison is. He is in a dark pit. It's actually the word used dungeon just means a dark pit. He's in some subterranean kind of, you know, 4,000 years ago health conditions. And it says in one of the Psalms that he's, in Psalm 105, that he's shackled and chained. You know, he's probably got very little food. He's probably, uh, you know, he's, he's, in the, he's probably been in prison for five years. He maybe worked in Potiphar's house for five or six years. He's probably been in prison for five or six years. He's not given into self-pity. How do we know that? Because he says this. The captain of the guard assigned him to Pharaoh's officials, uh, uh, to Joseph, that's the baker and the cupbearer, and he attended them. And after they'd been in custody for some time, we don't know how long, one morning he saw they were dejected. 
That is remarkable, isn't it? He saw they were dejected. Here's Joseph, totally otherly. Jesus is on the cross, being crucified, and he looks at his mum and says, obviously he thinks, mum, you're going to be on your own. I'm gone, you're... Joseph, your husband's died. So he says to his best friend, John, look after my mum. He didn't say, oh, poor me. God's abandoned me. No, he's, he's otherly. He's otherly. And Joseph is the same. It says, he says, why are you feeling so down? If Joseph had been in self-pity, he would have never taken that, asked that question and then he would have never got to interpret the dreams and he would have never got to be known for interpreting dreams, and he never got to Pharaoh's palace. It started with him saying, I'm going to be otherly. You don't know as you go about your day, if you're self-obsessed and self-absorbed and never otherly, you don't know what opportunities in God you're wasting. Sorry, that wasn't in my notes, I just thought I'd rant at you. (laughs) He says, so he says, um, so this is now impatience. So it's in customary, why are you so sad today? Uh, we both had dreams, they answered, but no one can interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to Yahweh. Tell me your dreams. He blows his cover. I'm not an Egyptian, I'm a foreigner. I believe in this God, Yahweh. You might believe in your God, Ra, or Aknaan, you might believe in your gods, but I believe in this God, Yahweh. He knows everything. He's in charge of everything. He gives dreams and interprets dreams. He gives promises and makes promises come true. He tells him a little gospel, doesn't he? And they go, oh, interesting. He gets himself straight out there. Tell me your dreams, he says. Tell me your dreams. What he says is, interprets the dreams, you saw it there, but just a snippet, it says, really coming to land now. It says, you put Pharaoh's cup in his hand, says the cupbearer, you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand, just as you used to do when you were cupbearer. And then he says this, and when all goes well with, with you, Remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh to get me out of this prison. It's really interesting that actually Joseph doesn't believe his story's over. He doesn't believe his story's over. Actually, because he believes that God has promised that he's going to be this, this, this prince, and he thinks, I'm not this prince, but the story's not over. He doesn't say God's word's not reliable. He says the story's not over. So he's got hope. He's got hope. And he says, remember me to Pharaoh. He says, because I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even when I've, even here I've done nothing to deserve being put in dun- dungeon. I think this is probably the first time he's got really honest and said, look, you know, just remember me, it's tough. And that's okay. You know, self-pity, and it's okay to say life's tough, but just... Just be careful. And then later, the chapter finishes, now the third day was Pharaoh's birthday and he gave a feast for all his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that he once again put the, hand into, uh, the cup into Pharaoh's hand just as Joseph has said to them in his interpretation. The chapter finishes, the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph, but he forgot him. We finish here with the, with, we're leaving, we're going to leave Joseph in prison. But actually, that, that if you read the Psalms, what, sometimes the Psalms are saying, how long, O Lord? You're probably saying, how long, O Lord, about this preach. But hey, bear with it. You know, we're nearly done. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? When are you going to do what you've promised? When is it going to happen? When's salvation going to come? When, when's transformation going to come? You probably should feel that about the world outside. You might feel it about your life, but you probably should feel it about the world outside. How long, O God? When are you going to do something? How long, O Lord? And I think maybe they went away three days later. The cupbearer goes back to, to, to Pharaoh and he's thinking, all oh, right, he'll be down there tomorrow. He's going to say, I met this amazing guy. Tell me my dream. And then tomorrow he waits and thinks maybe. And then the day after, and the day after, and the day after. For two years he's thinking, God's going to deliver now. I don't think he drifted into self-pity and laziness and feeling sorry. He's thinking, no, I'm going to press in. I think he continued to serve, continued to believe, continued to say. He doesn't lose hope. Two slides have we done. Phil Moore in his book uh, uh, about uh, about Genesis says this. When God's word 
and his circumstances failed to match each other, Joseph knew it simply meant that God had not reached the end. He had not reached the end of God's story. Listen to this. Circumstances do not shape our destiny. Our destiny begins with God. If God's hands had allowed Joseph's trouble, then his sure hope was that the solution to his troubles was in God's hands as well. He kept believing. He kept believing for that healing, for that breakthrough, that transformation. He kept believing, even though it didn't happen. He didn't forget. Let's have the band back. So what, what we're going to do with this? How are you doing? How are you doing with temptations to grasp power and influence? How are you doing with those temptations for passion? And How are you doing in self-pity? How are you doing with patience? Believing God's going to bring transformation. How are you doing? How can you do that? You need to not do these temptations, as I said, by willpower. You need to consider Jesus. The writer of the Hebrews, the Hebrews at this time when the letter to the Hebrews was written, were suffering loads of persecution and loads of trouble and loads of hardship and find it really, really difficult. And the writer to the Hebrews finishes the letter with this. Let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. That's what Joseph did. Let's run with perseverance. Their patience is running on. The race marked out for us. How do we do this? Fixing our eyes on Jesus. The beginner and finisher, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. When we break bread, and Andy helped us so brilliantly with this a few weeks ago, when we break bread, we're, we're considering him. We're considering his body that was broken. We're considering his life that was falsely accused, his, his imprisonment, his, his death. We're considering that life that's being given on, on our behalf. It says, consider him. Consider him. Who endured such opposition from sinful men or sinners so that you do not grow weary and lose heart. How are you going to cope in your life? How are you going to cope when life goes up and down? How are you going to cope in your life? You must consider Jesus. You've got to daily consider him. Bible reading is not a tick box exercise. It's saying, I need to consider him. I need to have that passion so I can cope with temptation. I need to have that faith so I don't slip into uh, impatience. I need to have that confidence in God so I don't become self-pitying. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.